Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Kroll. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected here on Empower Radio. I'm Dr. Julie Kroll. Hey, what do you think? Can forgiveness create peace in our lives and the lives of our families, community, country, and world? Our guest today says yes. In this time of heightened racial and cultural tensions, this conversation is more pertinent than ever. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self. I'd like to introduce my guest, Azim Kamisa. He's an inspiration, for sure, hailed by dignitaries such as the Dalai Lama, former President Bill Clinton, and Al Gore. Azim carries his inspirational message of forgiveness, peace, and hope into a world in desperate need of each. Following the loss of his only son, Tarek, in 1995, to a senseless gang-related murder, Azim chose the path of forgiveness and compassion rather than revenge and bitterness. And this amazing choice led to the establishment of the Tarek Kamisa Foundation and the subsequent forgiveness movement, which has reached millions. Azim is also an inspirational speaker an award-winning author. I have one of his books right here beside me, and they're just filled with a beautiful message. So welcome, Azim. Thank you for having me on your show, Julie. Oh, you're more than welcome. You know, you have a fascinating story, and and I'm anxious for you to set the tone and and let our listeners know about it. But first, we have a tradition here on the show, and so I want to just start with our Traditional question, Azim, and that is, what does all things connected mean to you? I think it's that we are all one. I think that the spark in each one of us is the same, irrespective of our you know, race or religion. I think that we are one human race. I think that that uh, was very obvious to me when I met uh, the young man who killed my son. And I'm, you know, spent an hour and a half with him talking man to man. And uh, at one point, um, we held each other's glance for a very long time. I'm looking in his eyes to try and find a murderer. And I really didn't. I was able to climb through his eyes and touch his humanity. I recognized at that, at that, that moment that the spark in him was no different than the spark in me, or you, or any of your listeners. I wasn't expecting that. Sure, he done the worst possible thing you can do to kill an you know, innocent, unarmed human being, but that did not make him, they did not make him inhuman. And I could tell, it took five years for me to go meet him after the tragedy, but I, I could tell that my hand of forgiveness had changed him because he was well-mannered. He was 19 at that time. He was well-spoken, articulate. He was remorseful. And he's not a bad kid. He made a very bad choice. 
So at that particular point, I told him, not only do I forgive you, I want you to know when you come out, you have a job at the foundation. So to me, and I talk about all things connected, I think all of us, all the sentient beings are really one. And that I think that one of my central messages, I speak to a lot of kids in schools and universities to promote the concept that we are one human race. Mm. Yeah, and you speak to that in your book as well, which was really a, a beautiful introduction of really talking about that one source, no matter what our race, religion, cultural upbringings or beliefs, that that one source is in everyone. And I loved how you, you phrased that. I think you talked about the one soul that we're all a part of. It's beautiful. Yeah, and I, and I think that uh, in... Uh you know, there's a lot of issues around racism in our country, and I hate these forms when you have to fill them out. You know, the choices are kind of comical. The first choice is Hispanic, but not white, because, you know, Hispanics can be, you know, as I said, they come in 34 flavors. They can be very light or they can be very dark. <laughs> and the next choice is Native American, but not white, because Native Americans can be very light or dark. And then it goes to the obvious choices of, you know, Caucasian, African-American, Asian. And then there is a little box at the end that says other. When I have to fill these forms up, uh, I always mark other and put human. Oh, because I, I love that. We, I yeah, love I that. We, well, I let's go we, back we, in time just to set this, this scene for our listeners <laughs> a little bit more. They've, they've heard that your son was murdered, but this was, this was a while ago. So take us back about your story and, and really, what moved you to this place of forgiveness? And, you know, since that time, here 20 years later, you've written, you've spoken, you've inspired people all over to choose nonviolence. But you went through a really tough time when your only son was murdered. Let's, let's go back and set the scene. Yes, it was January of 1995, uh, 20 years ago. But those early days are etched very deeply on my heart and my mind and my soul. I don't know what is more complicated in life than to lose a child. I always maintained that parents were not engineered to withstand the loss of a child. It's probably every parent's worst nightmare and very complex. And it was the same for me because he was a great kid. He was a student at San Diego State University and worked weekends as a pizza delivery man. He was a good writer and a good photographer, and his uh, dream was someday to work for National Geographic. And he was lured to a bogus address by a youth gang, and uh, they gave the address of the building with the wrong apartment number, and he knocked on many doors, came back to his car, put the pizzas in the trunk of his car, and as he was about to leave the scene of the crime, he was accosted by four youth. Three of them were 14-year-old, and the leader of the gang was an 18-year-old who gave the order, bust him bones. Bones was his gang nickname, and he fired one round. But uh, it was fatal. It uh, came through the driver's side window, entered my son's body under the left shoulder blade, the bullet traveled across the upper part of his chest and it exited from his right armpit. And as the coroner explained to me afterwards, he said the bullet followed 
a perfect path. And I remember I thought a perfect path, that was an interesting choice of words. But he was very quick to tell me, he said, uh, Mr. Kamisa, I'm not trying to be insensitive. Uh, we do not see a path like this very often. And what it means in my lingo is it destroyed all the vital organs. And Tariq died, drowning in his own blood a couple of minutes later, over a lousy pizza at the age of 20. You know, you think the sudden senseless death of an innocent, unarmed human being, overwhelming grief of a family, the total confusion is to try to absorb a new hideous reality. And, and, and you know, when I got the call from homicide, uh, I thought they'd made a mistake because I thought this wasn't make any sense. And so I very quickly hung up on Homicide. I remember her name was Sergeant Lambert, and I called uh, Tariq's uh, phone because he had just gotten engaged to his girlfriend, Jennifer, and they and they'd moved together. They'd been dating for a couple of years, and they had plans to get married, and I fully expected him to pick up the phone because he didn't. She did, and she couldn't say anything. She was uh, sobbing because uh, they knew before I did, because the police went to their house first. And I was in my kitchen, and uh, I lost strength in both of my legs. I fell to the floor, hit my head against the refrigerator. And I wish I had the words to describe to you how excruciatingly painful that experience was for me, but I don't. It literally felt like a nuclear bomb had gone off in my heart that I had never in my life experienced pain like that. In fact, the pain was so excruciating that I had my first out-of-body experience. I, I couldn't be in my body, I left my body. And I believe I went into the loving arms of God. I, I practice as a Sufi Muslim and I believe in God. And, um, and, 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 he held me in an embrace for a very long time, and then when the explosion subsided, he sent me back into my body, you know, with the wisdom that there are victims at both ends of the gun. So that didn't come out from my, my, my intellect or my loving heart. I, it came from a higher power, and that kind of surprised me because I lived by myself in... Uh, San Diego and my best friend. Um, I don't have any f family. At least at that time, I didn't. But my, you know, best friend and his wife were with me, and and his wife went to get Jennifer, which was Tariq's girlfriend, and I was by myself and um, with my buddy. And he said to me, "Whoever these kids are, I hope they fry in hell." And I, t I looked at him and I said, "I don't feel that way. I see that there are victims at both ends of the gun." And I remember he broke down and cried because they have a son called Adam. And he says, if somebody killed Adam, not only would I want the killer, I'd want the whole clan. So for me to have had that compassion and empathy for the kid who took it, it was easy to see that my son was a victim. It's a little bit complicated to see him a victim, but he's also a victim. I mean, who's the enemy here? Is it the 14-year-old who killed my son, or is it the societal forces? 
that force so many young souls to fall through the cracks. And uh, in any community in our country, you know, we have a tremendous problem with gang violence. So I decided that the enemy was not the 14-year-old, other the societal forces that, you know, force many young people to make bad choices. And that kind of started the journey about looking at the problem of youth violence. And then nine months later, I established the Tari Kamisa Foundation, and our mission is to stop kids from killing kids. And essentially, three mandates by breaking the cycle of youth violence. Our first mandate is to save lives of children, because as you know, we lose way too many on a daily basis. And think about how many tragedies we've had just in this last month and a half. Our second mandate is to, you know, empower the right choices because we don't want kids to, you know, end up in lives of violence and gangs and drugs and alcohol, and we want to empower them to the right choices. And our third mandate is to teach the principles of nonviolence, of empathy, of compassion, of forgiveness, and most importantly, of peacemaking. Because violence is a learned behavior. No child was born violent. And if that can, and if you accept that as a truism, that violence is a learned behavior, then nonviolence can also be a learned behavior. And uh, But you have to teach the kids these principles because they're not going to learn these principles through osmosis. And that's how I spent the last 20 years. Through my story, we are teaching the power of nonviolence. Soon after I started the foundation, I reached out to the grandfather and guardian of my son's killer with the attitude that I'm not here, you know, screaming retribution and revenge. Rather, I'm here in the spirit of compassion and forgiveness because what I really see here is we both lost a child. I mean, my son died. And you lost your grandson, which was like a son to him, and, uh, and, and Tony calls him daddy. And you lost your grandson to the adult criminal justice system. Tony was the first 14-year-old in the state of California to be tried as an adult. There's nothing I can do to bring my son uh, from the dead. He's gone. And there's nothing you can do to take Tony out of prison. It's not in your hands anymore. And I started this foundation with a very lofty mission of stopping kids from killing kids. So the real reason I'm here to to ask for your help, because this is a big job and I really can't I can't do this by myself. And 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 it behooves us to, to work together because we both lost a son. And uh, while we can't get I can't get my son back from the dead and you can't get Tony out of prison, the one thing you and I can do is to make sure no other young person in our community ends up dead like my son or ends up in prison like your grandson. That that we can do. Will you help me? So he was very quick to take my hand of forgiveness. And, um, and 20 years later, we are still together. And uh, we are regularly at schools and we are introduced. This man's grandson killed this man's son. And they are here together. We, you know, he's African American. My roots are Eastern. He's, he's Christian. I am Muslim. And his grandson took my son. 
And uh, I would never have met him had that not happened. And I can tell you, he's as close to me as my own brother. You know, we travel often together. Um, the foundation, with the grace of God, is done really well. I started with a very modest uh, investment of eight thousand, and, and uh, you know we've uh, we are not. I don't. You know, we have a lot of mentors, so they change. But at any given time, we could have thirty, forty employees. Uh, we are successfully keeping kids away from gangs, guns, and violence. We've created what we call a safe school model which has several programs. Uh, there's a live assembly, as I said earlier, with me and the grandfather. We have in-classroom curriculum. We teach classes on empathy and compassion and forgiveness and peacemaking and choice-making. Uh, and then we have after-school groups that deal with gangs, with, that deal with weapons, drugs, alcohol, teen pregnancies, everything that leads to getting involved in a life of violence. And then we find they're really middle school focused, and we find that 8 to 12% of the kids are the challenging kids, and we hook them up with mentors. And all of these programs together are under the umbrella of the safe school model, and uh, we are able in three years to take a school that is highly violent, gang-infested, failing on all state and federal standards, and we get rid of the gangs. Uh, we... Uh, we teach the principles of nonviolence, and we cut expulsions and suspensions by 80%, which is amazing, because if you suspend a kid or expel a kid, guess where they end up? They end up in a gang, and then they end up in a prison. In fact, that is, you know, you often hear the line, school to prison pipeline. So we are able to, to, to teach and and, and teach nonviolence and show that, you know, we can turn these kids around and have them make, you know, better choices. Mm. And the kid who killed my son is now 34. Uh, and, of course, now I'm regularly in his life. And my first book was From Murder to Forgiveness. And I followed that book with uh, Forgiveness to Fulfillment because the work that I've done in the aftermath of my son's tragedy uh, and I've given over a thousand presentations to kids, reached a million kids worldwide, a speaker in Europe, Australia, Canada, and here. I have over 200,000 letters uh, from kids of all ages, including university and high school. So the work has been very fulfilling and very meaningful. And uh, I didn't do this work when Tariq was alive. I worked as an international investment banker. I grew up in Kenya and was educated in England. And I speak a half a dozen languages. And uh, so most of my work was international. Uh, but today I'm more of a social worker. And I look at that as a step up in my career because I, I've really loved the work. Investment banking was about money. This is about saving lives of children. And not enough people are doing this. And I can tell you it's been a very fulfilling experience for me. And then I just finished the trilogy by... Uh, writing the book from fulfillment to peace, and the kid who killed my son, who is now uh, thirty-four, wrote the, wrote the forward to that book and did an amazing job. He reads five books a month. He is twelve units away from his first degree in child psychology. Um, uh, he's not about gang violence, and I'm trying to get him out so he can join his grandfather and me. I think you can see the power of him on stage with his grandfather and me when he tells the students when I was 11, I joined a gang when I was 14. 
I murdered Mr. Kamisa's son. I spent the last umpteen years in prison, and I'm here to tell you it's not worth it. Because I know that Tony would like to turn the clock back. I wish I could. You know, I'd have my son back, and the grandfather would have his grandson back. But obviously, that is not possible. But what I do know in my hearts of hearts is that he, that we've saved him. But more importantly, when he is on stage and shares his testimony, he will save many thousands and thousands of kids from not following in his former footsteps. And I think that that demonstrates uh, the power of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to take a break, Azim, in just a few minutes. We have about four minutes before our break, and I'd really love to turn our conversation to those qualities that you write about of, of how fulfillment leads to forgiveness and, and talking about the goodwill and and friendship and trust and empathy and compassion. But before you, you really, really painted a beautiful picture of the foundation, and I just want to make sure our listeners know that how to reach you there. And I believe that that website for the foundation is tk.org. Is that correct? It's TKF. It's uh, TKF. Tango Kilo Foxtrot TKF.org. Tariq Kamisa Foundation. Okay. There's three letters, tkf.org. Okay. We'll turn to your book here in just a second. But I do want to say, you know, the breadth and depth of the work from the foundation on the forgiveness process and the nonviolence is incredible. And, um, you know, bless you for going into these schools and... And, and really making a huge difference. You're right, 80% cut in suspensions and expulsions are incredible. Um, you have an anniversary coming up, the 20th anniversary. So before we take a break, why don't you tell our listeners, it's coming up the 3rd of October, um, what can they do if they're in the California area? Well, we'd love for them to be there. The venue is the Rancho Santa Fe Golf Course. It's a beautiful venue, and uh, the details are on our website. Uh, It's going to be a major celebration because, you know, when I made the choice 20 years ago to forgive instead of go the other way, I had no clue everything that has manifested as a result of that choice. So we're celebrating, and if there are listeners that live in San Diego or Los Angeles or Orange County were not that far, would love to have them at that event and help us celebrate the accomplishments of uh, the foundation over the last 20 years. They'll meet the grandfather. They'll meet the, my daughter, actually, is the executive director, and they'll meet the staff of the, um, you know, of the foundation. And they'll also meet a lot of our mentors and mentees, kids that, uh, uh, we are featuring 20, uh, actually we've transformed many, but because of this, you know, time lines, we're featuring 20 people that have been transformed uh, over the years as a result of our message. So, you know, if they are able to support us uh, uh, in any way they can, you know, maybe there are ways to donate as well. We, we don't charge for our programs because the schools we go to are inner city schools which are normally very violent, and they don't have money for basic needs. So I made a decision very early to provide our programs for free because uh, as a society, we do not fund prevention. There's money once they are incarcerated, but not money to keep them out. So 
I spend as much time uh, raising money as I am out there talking to kids. So if you have listeners that are touched by our story, uh, they can definitely help uh, us uh, by donating so that we can go to more schools. At any given time, you know, I may have 30, 40 schools waiting for our program, and we don't have the financial resources to meet that need. You know, I, I hope someday uh, that, uh, that the government will fund us because the cost of, of free public education is about 10000 a year. The cost of our program is $50 a year. And I mean, all the programs that go under the safe school model. So, you know, if we can spend $10,000 and $50 a student a year, we can be in every school that needs us. Yes. On, the, okay. on the reverse side, the cost of incarceration is $140,000 a year. Uh, so yes. you don't have to be an investment banker to know that $50 is a better investment, you know? Amen. Okay, well, we're going to take that break that we talked about. I just want to remind our listeners, they can they can look at the Tarek Kamisa Foundation at TKF. Org. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more on forgiveness and moving from fulfillment to peace. We'll be right back. Sassy! Sassy! This week's episode, Danger at the Old Well. Last one to the old well's a rotten egg. Ha ha, I win. Whoa! Johnny fell down the well! I'm wet! What, Sassy? You know where Mr. Gunderson keeps his rope? Go get it, girl! What? You'd rather use his time to set people straight about shelter pet adoption? I'm cold! People shouldn't be afraid to adopt from a shelter? Because shelter pets are screened for sound health and temperament? I'm wet and cold! Sassy, what about Johnny? What? Let Johnny sit in the well until he learns to be more self-reliant? Sassy! What'd he say? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt! Come to the forest. It's a place not so far away. A place where you don't have to mow the lawn. Or babysit. I saw lizards and squirrels and bugs. Ladybugs, caterpillars. It's really cool, actually. A place where you don't have to make time for free time. Lots and lots of kinds of species here. Out here, you may even meet the mysterious creature known as the other you. The enchanted you. It's magic what flowers do. The adventurous you. My favorite tree, yes, is that one. The free-to-be-me you. (laughs) Ask your parents to take you to this not-so-far-away place. Come to the forest, where the other you lives. But first, stop by discovertheforest.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. I'm home. I'm home where I belong I'm home and I love it I'm home where I belong It's always nice to come home But these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes 
Fortunately, help is available. Making Home Affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners, and we want to help you. I'm home. I'm home. And I love it. I'm home. I'm home. Find out now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home. I'm home. Where I be. Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected on Empower Radio. We're back on the Dr. Julie Show, and this is Dr. Julie Kroll. My guest today is Azim Kamisa, and we've been talking about the Tarek Kamisa Foundation, and Azim has a beautiful book. So if you enjoy what you're listening to, want to share it with your friends, want to look up those links, go ahead and join us on the drjulieshow.com where all the links will be there, the archive for the show, and all the information that you need to find Azim and his foundation will be there as well. Also on the Empower Radio site. So please join us again. That's the drjulieshow.com and stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. Azim, one of the things that I really appreciate about what you said and what really woke you up to this journey of forgiveness was when you heard God in that moment when you were wrapped in in that place of shock and pain and what have you, and you hear the words, there's victims on both sides of the gun. And that brings me back to the opening of our show when we're talking about all things connected, really being that same source, that same divinity within each and every person. And, and I know what has unfolded in your book that I love, I have from fulfillment to peace right here, is really the lessons that you learned about forgiveness and the qualities that um, that you talk about that each one of us have the ability to develop within ourselves. And so here, you know, our listeners, they may not have had something as traumatic or tragic in their lives, but they have those coworkers that you know, family members, someone in traffic. There's a lot of things going on that really move us out of that place of peaceful being from that center. And you also talk about high vibration and low vibration emotions. So I'd really love for you to talk a little bit about what you've learned about forgiveness and then these these steps and these qualities that have really helped you maintain this beautiful place of of peace and a peaceful center in your life? Right. I, I think that's a very good question because as I travel around the world, um, I find a lot of people are, as you pointed out, in resentment for what has been done to them or they're also in guilt for what they have done because at some level we have all harmed people and sometimes we have harmed people we love the most. So if you're walking around with resentment for what has been done to you, and everybody has a story, uh, or if you are walking around with guilt for what you have done, these are highly debilitating 
states of emotion. So when you think about guilt and resentment and anger and hatred and revenge and greed and avarice and jealousy, these are very low vibratory emotions. But they occupy your psyche a lot because, uh, you know, when you are in resentment and guilt, uh, you know, this comes up a lot in your life. And what it does, it precludes you from being out there 100%. And if you're not out there 100%, obviously you are not doing any credit to yourself, to your family, and more importantly, to your community. So by forgiving people that have harmed you, you are able to eliminate resentment from your important real estate of your psyche. And then by forgiving yourselves, you're also able to eliminate guilt from your consciousness. Now think about it. Why do you want somebody who has hurt you to occupy this important, meager real estate of your psyche? Why not forgive for love and joy can live there? I give an example. I, I have a two-and-a-half-day train-the-trainer workshop where I work with a lot of therapists and people that work in you know, spiritual venues and teach three steps of how to forgive people that have harmed you and four steps of how to forgive yourself. Because I truly believe that one of the reasons I have succeeded in my social work, I wasn't trained in it, I was an investment banker, so my background was in business, but I've succeeded in the work I'm doing in the social arena because I do not harbor any resentment or guilt, so I can be out there 100%. So in this particular uh, workshop I did in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, there was a Jewish lady that on the morning of the second day, she said to me, Azim, you, you don't get it. And she was very animated, and I said to her, her name was Riva, and she's given me permission to share a story. She said, uh, I said, well, Ria, what is it that I don't get? She said, I am trying to forgive Hitler. So Hitler died in 1944, 71 years ago, and I told her, and how's that working for you? And then when you look at, you know, uh, taking Hitler, you don't have to worry about Hitler because trust me that God knows how to deal with Hitler a lot better than you do or I do. So let him leave your psyche because it's not up to you to, you know, think about Hitler. Because, you know, this is one of the things that's so hard for people to understand is that the biggest impediment to forgiveness is judgment. When, you know, the only person that was not able to forgive Tony who killed my son was Jennifer. Because uh, all of my family had. I told Jennifer, I am, I'm not going to judge Tony. He has his journey. I have my journey. I had a very good life, a successful life. I traveled the world. I did not want to go through life angry because if I am angry or in resentment, who am I hurting? I'm hurting myself. It's self-abuse. Even Mandela had a beautiful way to say that resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. Mm, yeah. Azim, um, I, I just want to pause there because I think this is a really important piece of the forgiveness because I, I hear you talking about Jennifer and and I just want to point out, and maybe you can speak to this, is that even 
even though you have forgiven him, it doesn't mean you don't miss Tarek horribly and feel a void in your life. It's just that you're not spending that energy and time with that bitterness in your, like you said, that precious real estate in your psyche. Is that, is that how yeah. you would say that? Well, yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. There's two pieces there, that forgiveness is something you do for yourself. It's not up to you to judge. Leave the judging to the higher power. There is no escaping wrongdoing. I mean, Tony still gets up in the middle of the night with sweaty palms and nightmares. I mean, how would you like to live in you know, knowing you murdered an innocent, unarmed human being? That's tough. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I know Hitler is paying for it. But the second piece of your question is, one is you don't want to live in resentment, because if you stay in resentment, it will become disease. And very often that disease is cancer. The other piece is that I recognize that unless I forgave, I would remain a victim. I did not want to go through life on crutches and saying I lost my one and only son. Of course I miss him. I think about him several times a day. How many times have I mentioned Tariq even in this short interview? I think him all the time. But the point I'm trying to make is I wanted that full life back. I have that full life back because I was able to forgive because there's no quality going through life as a victim. And even this lady, Reva, a month later, she, she had the biggest breakthrough because she was able to get rid of Hitler from her psyche. And a month later, I got a letter from her saying, my husband thanks you. After 40 years, we have now have had the most loving relationship because if you are harboring that resentment and hatred, it shows up everywhere. It showed up in the relationship with her husband or everybody. When she was able to let Hitler go, knowing that's his journey, she didn't want to have to deal with him anymore. That love and joy manifested in all aspects of her life. Mm. So it's a selfish act. And somebody corrected me the other day and said forgiveness is a selfful act because it's something you do for yourself. But you have to separate you from the offender because that is his journey. Leave that to the higher power. Even if Tony was not caught, you know, karma eventually gets even because I truly believe there is no escaping wrongdoing. It's not up to you and me to worry about it. What you have to get to is to say, I, I want to forgive because I don't want to live in resentment and I, and I don't want to live a life of a victim. And once you're able to forgive people, you're also able to forgive yourself so that you can get rid of that guilt. Yeah, so that's again brings us back to there's victims on both sides of that gun. The other right. thing, Azim, that I think is what I'm hearing from you and, and what I hear in the book is you also don't want to get stuck in any of those other low vibration emotions yes. that bring us down, like like the grief itself right. makes you a victim absolutely. again. Yeah, absolutely. I, so, you know, uh, this is what I learned from His Holiness the Dalai Lama that every emotion has a frequency. And some of the emotions have a very low frequency, like we talked about, you know, greed and jealousy and revenge and resentment and anger and avarice, judgment. Judgment is one of those low vibratory emotions. Happiness doesn't live there. And then there are high vibratory emotions of goodwill, of friendship, of trust, of gratitude, of empathy, of compassion. Forgiveness is right there with love. These are very high vibratory emotions. That's where 
happiness is. And what I found after 20 years of my work, that I am now living more often. If you meet the Dalai Lama, he's there 724. I mean, you know, he exudes these high vibratory emotion because he walks into a room and he lights up the entire room. You can feel his aura and his presence. And I find now that uh, I'm spending more time in these high vibratory emotions. And when I am there, I am more, I have more days in the flow. And I work very hard to stay in the vibratory emotions that I just described because if you are able to start to practice, and I, I always tell people, and you know, I have a meditation, it's a free download. Uh, there's two meditations on my website, which is my personal name, azimkamisa.com. One guided meditation is on forgiveness, as I speak a lot on it. The other one is on, grat- on, on, on manifesting your goals, and also how you can end your meditation and remain in gratitude for the rest of the day. And I think once you start to live, in this high vibratory emotions, your day will go better, more peaceful, and you're more in the flow. Now, you know, us mortals, we all have a bad hair day. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I mean, I do too, and, you know, you get angry, and I work very hard not to get angry, but, you know, it does happen. And when that happens, um, uh, I recognize that I am, I've now fallen off the wagon. And when that happens, what I do, I meditate two hours a day. It's been my mainstay. And if I fall off the wagon, I add another half an hour and I process that low vibratory emotion and then come back to living the high vibratory emotion. Sometimes it can take a few days based on what happened. But the point is, it's important to know at any given moment, and that's not so hard. I mean, you should know exactly at any given moment, if you are aware, where are you vibrating? Are you vibrating in a low vibratory emotion or are you vibrating in a high vibratory emotion? And then start the practice of making sure that you spend more time on the high vibratory emotion. And the way I do it is I start my day with the meditation. I have a prayer I do. And then I read something inspirational from the scriptures or whatever, and I start my day. And I, and I think that I, and, and, and I, and one of the, uh, one of the high vibratory emotion is gratitude. And I finish all of my meditations with gratitude and then, try and set the intention that I want to stay in this piece of gratitude for the rest of the day. And it works. Yes. What a, what a beautiful prescription for all those listening is, is really you're starting your whole day and you're coming from that place of, of high vibration and meditation and scripture reading or whatever anyway, and then you move into gratitude. That's really beautiful. You know, the other qualities that you talked about that are high vibration, um, maybe you could speak a little bit about this. You talked about really this goodwill and friendship and trust and empathy leading to compassion and peace. So what would be another prescription for that pathway for people who are just getting started? How might they move toward that place of peace? Yes. So, you know, the, what happened is, um, um, 9-11-2001, uh, I mean, everybody knows exactly where they were at uh, 2001. I mean, it's heavy on all of our hearts. 
and uh, but a little bit heavier on my heart because the perpetrators of this atrocity were from my faith. I'm a practicing Muslim. It's not the faith because, you know, the same faith helped me to get to forgiveness. And all faiths teach empathy and compassion and forgiveness. I mean, Christianity is, is huge on forgiveness. I mean, they are, they are crucifying Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, forgive them, Father, they do not know what they are doing. I mean, that's an amazing example of forgiveness. So it's not the faith. I'm 99.9% of the Muslims, although the media will tell you differently, are just peaceful like any other Christian or Buddhist or Jewish or, you know, all of the other faiths. So, but we all have knuckleheads in our, in, in our religion. And, and uh, so it's really, I believe that when 9-11 was politically driven, it had nothing to do with the faith. And, but I went into this really deep, level of introspection, because I couldn't quite understand how they would distort the principles of the faith to create such violence and atrocity. I mean, it was a very difficult time uh, for me, and I think a lot of Muslims, because that's not how I grew up, and that's not how I understood my faith. And, uh, and I stayed in this introspection for a good six months. And, uh, and I, as I mentioned earlier, I meditate a couple hours a day. I get a lot of my ahas in my uh, meditation. And then after six months, what came out is this particular quote. I have an active journal, and I have many quotes that I've written in it. And this particular quote that came out is the basis of my last book. Um, which uh, which uh, Tony wrote the forward to, and and the quote was, "Sustained goodwill creates friendship." Now, that came as a result of my relationship with the grandfather that I was able to extend goodwill because you make friends by extending goodwill, you don't make friends by bombing them. So you know, you start this: sustained goodwill creates friendship, and then sustain. Friendship creates trust, and then sustained trust creates empathy, and then sustained empathy creates compassion, and then sustained compassion creates peace. So I call this my peace formula. It starts with goodwill, and then it goes to friendship, and it goes to trust, and it goes to empathy, and it goes to compassion, and it goes to peace. But people ask me, how do you extend goodwill to the person who murdered your child. And I tell them that you do that through forgiveness. As it's evident, it has worked for me. It has worked for my family. What's a miracle is worked for him, the kid who killed my son, and it worked for his family. Julie can work for you and your family and, and all the listeners of your show and their families. It can work for Israel and Palestine, North and South Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, Syria. It can work for the United States of America. It can work for the planet. So, you know, I always say that peace is possible. How do I know that? Because I am at peace. And this was the journey that got me there. Azim, is this also what you teach in the schools with the children? 
Absolutely. You know, we, um, we have courses and curriculum that walk you through these steps because uh, the important thing is to teach that the precursor for forgiveness is compassion. The precursor for compassion is empathy. And I'll give you a story of a, uh, when we do a, a, a lesson, um, and, and, you know, empathy maybe is a good lesson for me to pick, but we have lessons on all of these concepts, but on empathy, which is a big word for a seventh grader. So, so what in our lessons, we always have a theme. So the theme on empathy is you don't know me till you walk a mile in my shoes, and I don't know you till I walk a mile in your shoes because you cannot have empathy for somebody you don't know. I mean, I know everything about Tony. And he was born to a 15-year-old. His father was never in his life. He shunned him. His favorite cousin was you know, murdered at the age of eight. He was seduced by his uncle's girlfriend when he was eight and a half years old. I mean, I, I look at his life and... And he became gang involved at 11. I think if I had followed the same path as Tony had, I might would have made the same decision. So when we teach this empathy, so we talk about the importance of, you know, you can't have empathy for somebody you don't know. So we teach the lesson, we tell our story, and then the homework is, well, go walk a mile in somebody's shoes. And... Uh, and, and, and this is a true uh, uh, story about a kid called Alex. He's, he went by Alejandro, a Spanish kid, Hispanic kid, I should say. And, uh, uh, but he went by Alex, and he's very disruptive in the class. He's uh, definitely a wannabe gang member. You can tell by his mannerisms, by his walk, by his dressing, and by his behavior. But somehow this lesson got to him because the next les- lesson that follows empathy and compassion so when the teacher asked who wants to share their homework on empathy, well, his hand shot up. I mean, he was so animated that he really wanted to speak. And the teacher's thinking, well, if I have him speak, he's going to ruin the rest of my class because this kid was the most disruptive kid in his class. But she could not avoid him because he, he really wanted to speak. So she said, yes, Alex, what is it that you want to share? Now, he didn't ruin the class. He made the class. What he said is, I was walking in the hood last weekend, and this kid gave me a dirty, angry look. Now, the rules of the hood are if somebody gives you a dirty, angry look, and this kid giving him a dirty, angry look is African-American. And in San Diego, we have a lot of problems uh, with gangs that are African-Americans and Hispanic. And he says, uh, the rules of the hood is you go beat him up. But because you had told me you don't know me till you walk a mile in my shoes, I walked up to this kid and I asked him, why are you giving me a dirty, angry look? So what the kid tells you, the kid said, I'm not giving you a dirty, angry look. I am angry because my brother was shot and killed last night. So what did you do? I reached out to him. I put my hand on his shoulders. I told him, I know how you feel because my uncle, my favorite uncle, was shot and killed six months ago. Now, tell me you can't teach this stuff. Mm. And Alex, 
you know, walks the hood every weekend, not just last weekend. And when he sees a kid giving him an angry, dirty look, what does he do? He reaches out. So these are concepts that are very teachable. And, 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 I, and, I, and I've been doing this work for 20 years, and what really gives me such hope for the future of our planet, that not only are these principles teachable to our kids, our kids are hungry for them. Yeah. It's, impo- it's important to do. Yeah, yeah. Azim, I, this has been a, a beautiful conversation, and I just want to make sure our listeners um, know how to find you and the foundation again. So I just want to make sure I give out the website again that you can find Azim and all of his beautiful books, meditations, information about where he's going to be speaking next, um, all of that on his personal website, which is azimkamisa.com. That's A-Z-I-M-K-H-A-M-I-S-A.com. And then the Tarek Kamisa Foundation is tkf.org. So this is really incredible, the work that, and the whole body of work of all the thousands and thousands of kids that you've touched and what a blessing you are to so many, Azim. I'm just really honored to have you here today. And I really want to thank you for sharing your story with us. You're very welcome, Julian. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, you're welcome. So if you could have 60 seconds or less to have one more nugget to share with the listeners, what one thing would you want to say? One thing that I want to really get out there is that we need more people that can be out there working at 100%. I you know, my personal vision is to create a thousand Gandhis and a thousand MLK juniors, people that practice the principles we talked about, practice the principles of nonviolence. And I, and I think that it's important that the work is done individually on yourself first. So if you are living in resentment or if you're living in guilt, it is important that you learn to forgive people that have harmed you and get rid of that resentment. And my website can give you the tools. Uh, My third book is The Secrets of the Bulletproof Spirit, How to Bounce Back from Life's Hardest Hits, which was co-authored with Jillian Quinn, published by Random House. Um, And if you are living in guilt, it's important to forgive yourselves and then be out there 100% teaching these principles of nonviolence, not only to your families, but to your community, to your workplace, mm-hmm. because truly there's way too much violence in our world, and the only way that we can defeat this violence is having more people that practice nonviolence, because you cannot destroy nonviolence. We saw that in Gandhi. He brought the might of the British Empire in 1947, when they used to say the sun never sets on the British Empire, he brought the entire British Empire to their knees without firing a bullet. We yeah, saw that in MLK Jr. We saw that in Nelson Mandela when he was finally released. 
What did he say? I had to forgive because if I didn't, I would still be a prisoner. Yeah, beautiful. Azim, Kamisa, thank you again so much for being on our show. You've been listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. And again, you can find Azim at azimkamisa.com or go to thedrjulieshow.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you all back here next week. Bye-bye.